there's no such thing as being too Jewish. Thank you very much. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Jeff Margulies, Emmy-winning director of eight Oscars broadcasts, author of the new memoir, We're Live in Five, My Extraordinary Life in Television. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2jewishradio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2jewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. We've been reviewing this state of the reforming conservative Jewish movements in America over the last couple of 2Jewish shows a kind of deep dive in the state of non-Orthodox Judaism in the United States in the year 2024. After covering all that ground the last few weeks, perhaps the best course of action today is for me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, to pontificate on the future of the American Jewish community, non-Orthodox divisions. I mean, isn't that what people do all the time these days on the radio and in podcasts, foretell the future? usually with absolute certainty and taking no responsibility for whether or not what they predict will actually occur. By the way, if reincarnation turns out to be a thing in a future life, I'd like to come back as either a meteorologist or an economist. Those are great professions. You can be wrong all the time, both weathermen and economists inevitably are, and still keep your job. My caveat is that I have just as much of a chance of being wrong as right when I predict the future course of American Judaism. I hope that you won't remind me of my errors somewhere down the road if I turn out to be, you know, flat out wrong. Paradoxically, I must admit that I have both a pessimistic perception about what's going on right now in American Judaism. It's confusing, messy, not always inspirational. And... Nonetheless, an optimistic belief that what will follow our own peculiar era will be both more interesting Jewishly and much better for Judaism than what we are in the midst of right now. Okay, so what do I think will happen to conservative Judaism? I pretty firmly believe it will continue to melt away, losing congregations and congregants, camps and facilities slowly, conservatively, if you will, until it simply fades away into a few archaic institutions in a couple of heavily Jewish areas. Conservative Judaism is already a pale shadow of what it was when I started working as a cantor in that movement some, hmm, 45 years ago, perhaps. Conservative Judaism will continue to get some of those people raised in its schools and camps during their heyday, who just feel comfortable with its predictably dull services and uninspired leadership, its automatic and uncritical support of Israel. But ultimately, there is no future there. If you could short stock in conservative Judaism, I would definitely recommend doing so. Now, the reform movement's in quite a different place, but also a difficult one if not quite as difficult as the situation of the conservative movement today. 
Many Reformed congregations have experienced a decline in membership, too, in recent years, and the institutions that were long the envy of other Jewish movements in America have been battered in the past, oh, decade and a half. The flagship building of the Reform movement on the Upper East Side of New York, the UAHC and then URJ headquarters, was sold after the 2007-2008 crash, but for a pittance of what it was actually worth. The Young Leadership Training Center, Camp Kutz, fell apart too and was sold off. And the Historic Educational Center of Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati will stop ordaining rabbis on that campus in just two years, 2026, about 150 years after it began creating American rabbis. Now, HUC, Hebrew Union College, will continue to ordain Reform rabbis in New York, in Los Angeles, in Jerusalem, but it is indicative of another confusing trend in American Judaism. Lots of people get ordained as rabbis at a variety of places that call themselves seminaries. Most of them cater to second-career people who don't attend full-time and take their classes primarily online. This has led to a situation in which in some communities, like my own Tucson Jewish community, a whole bunch of slightly trained people are called quote-unquote rabbis without having really learned what a rabbi needs to know or do. And these so-called rabbis are often perfectly acceptable to communities and congregations who don't have much knowledge of Judaism themselves and find that their less-than-flush budgets can save a great deal by hiring a semi-rabbi in place of an actual one. With the challenge of convincing millennial and Gen X and Gen Z people that they should commit to something and join synagogues, there's also been a great deal of pressure to lower the quality of what Reform synagogues offer. If you can hire less trained and often less talented people for less money, And if you don't need to really dedicate yourself to a full program of Jewish education, meaningful and significant outreach, well, it saves money and makes it easier for everybody on the board, right? On the other hand, talented and energetic leaders, real rabbis and cantors and educators are able to change this trend at effective synagogues. Outstanding Reformed temples have the ability to grow and develop and impact not only their own congregations, but the entire communities in which they are located in meaningful, positive, creative ways. A key aspect of this is the Reform ability to do outreach, to welcome into synagogue communities those who have not yet connected, which is, in regions like the southwest of America, as much as 80% of the Jews in the community. That's a tremendous potential for growth. And that's an advantage that Reform Judaism, even when its institutional situation today is far from robust, is able to utilize to make meaningful differences in our American Jewish world. Look, it's not a simple or particularly positive time for any aspect of non-Orthodox Judaism. But it is a time when real energy and commitment can flourish a time of opportunity. I do believe that not only will Reform Judaism, with all of its diversity, survive, but that it will find its way to important successes in the coming decades. For now, right now, to play us in this morning, here's a lovely song from Israel from Yasmin Mualem, Yechafim, Barefoot. 
kind of bittersweet song. That was Yamin Mualam singing Yechafim. As she sings, at the end of the day, we are all barefoot and simple. Our guest this morning is Jeff Margolis, a Jewish guy who grew up in Los Angeles primarily. He's the Emmy-winning director of eight Oscar broadcasts, many American music awards, who is known and worked with virtually every star in America over a great and long career in television. Jeff is the author of the new memoir, We're Live in Five, My Extraordinary Life in Television. Here are some of his own stories, and they're terrific, when we come back in just a moment on Too Jewish. Do you know someone who personally made a major difference for the whole Jewish people? An individual who's done important work for Klal Yisrael and deserves to be highly recognized for that effort. As president of the Kohan Memorial Foundation, I'm grateful that the modest cash awards we started more than 10 years ago have grown into a substantial amount of unrestricted funds given to winners with the help of donors like many of you. The foundation, named for my grandparents, Rabbi Samuel S. Kohan and Irma Kohan, makes these awards for important service to Klal Yisrael, the entire Jewish people. That service can be in one of four activities, unity, education, creative arts, or rescue. Past Kohan Award recipients are remarkable people who've done outstanding work. If you know someone who qualifies for a Kohan Foundation Award, please go to kohanaward.com, C-O-H-O-N, award.com, and fill out the simple nomination form. That website is kohanaward.com. Nominate an individual or donate yourself. Do it for the whole Jewish people. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish our guest this morning. Jeff Margolis is an Emmy-winning producer uh, who did many Oscar shows as well as a number of other prominent television uh, specials. He got his first break. Well, I'll let him tell you all about it. His new book is We're Live in Five. Uh, Jeff Margolis with Lauren Stevens. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be here. It's a pleasure. So tell us how you got your start in the business. Well, as it says in the book, my grandfather introduced me to a cousin of mine who was moving here from Canada by way of New York to Los Angeles. And uh, 
my grandfather, you know, um, in our religion, our parents and grandparents hope that their boys in the family will all become doctors or lawyers. Yes, my my parent, my mom too, still, right. she's gone now, but it was always a disappointment to her. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I graduated Hamilton High School, and uh, I got accepted to uh, USC as a pre-med student because uh, I was going to make my parents and grandparents happy, but never was interested in that. I was, from the time I was five years old, my dad brought the first televisions at home. I was hooked. So during my first semester at SC, I went to the counselor there and I just said, you know, I, I, I want to be in television. I want to produce and direct television. And she said, you know, we, we only have film here. We don't have television. The only television school in the country now is the UCLA. So anyway, I got into UCLA. That's how that happened. And the cousin who moved here from Canada by way of New York was introduced to me by my grandfather because he was in TV and my grandpa wanted, thought maybe he could help me. His name was Monty Hall. <laughs> and he had a show on he had a show on NBC called Let's, Let's Make, a, Make deal. a Deal. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, is still on the air, believe it or not. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, my grandpa introduced me to Monty, and Monty and I spoke, and Monty really liked my, my passion for what I wanted to do, and... I told him that I really wanted to, I wanted to get a job where I could be on the stage. I could be next to the talent. I could be next to the camera operators. I could see the boom mics and the lights. And usually when you first start working, you get a job in the mail room or you get a job as what's called a page or an usher where you, you know, let audiences in to see a game show or whatever it is and then get them out and back to their cars and all that. So Monty said, um, I think I can, I can introduce you to a guy who does cue cards. He owns a company that does cue cards, huh. which is a, which is a step up. And uh, let me introduce you to him, which he did. And I got hired, uh, like the guy who owned the cue card company was going to say no to Monty Hall, <laughs> right? right? right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's where it's great. You know, that's where it's great to have a little bit of nepotism. Uh, going uh, yeah, on. you need a little protexia in this business. I'm pretty sure. You started out holding up cue cards. I started holding up cue cards, and I was on the floor, and I got to meet the talent I was holding cards for, and I got to meet the camera operators and learn about, you know, I learned, I, I kept my eyes and ears open, and I started on Let's Make a Deal holding cue cards, and then I started. I got offered to do the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. You remember the Smothers Brothers? Of course, right? yeah. Tommy and Dickie Smothers, absolutely. Yeah, and Tommy just passed away, May rest. Yes, he did. So I said to Monty, you know, I'm not going to be able to do both shows. I'd really like to do the Smothers Brothers because that's kind of the area of television I want to be in, variety. And Monty said, uh, you know, the Tigers are... And he gave me a hug and a kiss and said, I'll see you in the hallway. Good luck. Monty Hall, actually, uh, I have a Monty Hall story because when I was my first full-time cantorial job was at Temple Beth Om. He was a member there and a good friend of Rabbi Jack Pressman of Blessed Memory. And they were like look-alike. So they did a shtick together my first right. year there. It was very nice man. Very nice man. Very generous. And uh, I mean, he was very not, he was very good to me. He opened the door, and 
I started to say what I learned very quickly is that uh, nepotism or not, you have to have the talent you know, to back up whatever you say you want to do or whatever you're interested in. People need to see that you can do it. You know, it's not, uh, you, you don't get hired because you're Monty's. Well, I was his cousin, but in my grandparents' family, they were very religious Orthodox Jews. And uh, so there were no second or third cousins. You only had first cousins. Anybody who was a second or third cousin was an aunt or an uncle. That's <laughs> why my second cousin, Monty, all became my uncle Monty. That's how that works. Absolutely. Boy, that, that's a very good, big Jewish family story. Uh, Jeff, you know about time constraints. We will come back with Jeff Margolis with lots more stories, including Oscar stories, when we return in just a moment here on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in the Catalina Foothills in northwest Tucson, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this winter, established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Religious schools available for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us for Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah tykes, confirmation, teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org to sign up. Beitsimcha's services, classes, and events are available to everyone. Come in person Friday night, 6.30 p.m. Shabbat services, followed by an Oneg Shabbat every Friday night. Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. Shabbat morning services, also followed by a Kiddush, all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. You can also come on Facebook. Our Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. You can access those by going to our website, Beit Simcha Tucson. Our wonderful religious school is available there, too. For more information about Beit Simcha, to come to services, religious school, Torah Tykes programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation, high school programs, rich array of adult education academy courses taught live and on Zoom, and all of our services in person and on our Facebook page, go to BeitSimchaTucson.org or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest-growing Jewish congregation in all of Southern Arizona. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or go to our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, 
twojewishradio.com, streaming us from there, downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store, is very popular Jewish podcast, top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify. Post a rating, review Two Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. We have uh, at various times talked about Morocco, which had a deeply ancient and very large Jewish community up until uh, so many of them migrated after the founding of the State of Israel in the 1950s and so on. There is an interesting aspect of the relationship of the Jews of Morocco to the dynasty of Morocco. still a kingdom, right? Let's talk about that a little bit. Didn't you once make some famous purchase in Morocco? I did. I bought not only a shofar, but a series of shofar, a couple of shofar boxes. I still have a shofar box. Only place I've ever seen one made out of various pieces of shofar. It's really cool. From the du- last, are you duly impressed by my memory? I'm amazed that For you a remember senile that. old man. No, no, the fact is, I've told that story many times. It may just be that I keep telling you the same story because I forget too. Anyway, that was from the last shofar maker of Morocco in Marrakesh. But okay. uh, of course, as a kingdom, you know, we think about authoritarian regimes and. Not always helpful for Jews, but that's not so true in Morocco. Right. Morocco is an exception in many ways and has been for quite a while. The current king, who's Mohammed VI, his father, who's Hassan II, and his grandfather, Mohammed V, were all incredibly pro-Jewish to the point where I was recently reading something about the beginning of the Holocaust and how it was carried out differently in different places. And they noted, in fairness, 
that Mohammed V, who was king of Morocco in the 40s and before and after, absolutely refused to enact any of the Nazi legislation against Jews. And Morocco at the time was a French colony, so it was theoretically ruled by the French, but the French were occupied. It was Vichy France. So the French... Think about the movie Casablanca, for example. The French did a lot of those laws and a lot of deportations. The king of Morocco said... No, in this country, Jews are Moroccans first and Jews second, and you're not deporting any Moroccans. So he took a very wow. firm stand. And since then, that stand has been sort of reinforced and even expanded by the fact that your earlier comment was exactly correct about a lot of Jews left Morocco, but not so much in the years right after 1948, more in the years after the Suez War in 56, and particularly after the Six-Day War in 67. But there's still a sizable Jewish community in Morocco, not just a handful. And Casablanca is the only city in the Arab world that has a Jewish museum that's alive and well. And a Jewish community center, for that matter. Right. And further, Morocco increasingly depends on tourist revenue for a percentage of its foreign currency and gets tourists from all over, but surprisingly, a rising number of tourists from Israel to the point that you know better than I, the Moroccan holiday Maimouna that comes at the yeah. end of Passover. Absolutely. It's like a giant party for like break, being able to eat hummets again. Yeah, that's right. Right. That's right. So... A lot of Israelis of Moroccan origin, even if it goes back to their grandparents or great-grandparents, go to Morocco for Passover and Maimouna. And that is to the point that most of the four- and five-star hotels in the country kosher their kitchens for Passover so that even observant Jews can eat like kosher le Pesach food in luxury hotels, and it's a big part of their tourism revenue. Yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating. I mean, the Morocco, they talk about it's kind of the Wild West of the Arab Muslim world of the Maghreb. It's not quite as restrictive. You don't have the extremism of Islamism that you so you find in so many other parts of the Arab world. Yeah, there's a lot more alcohol and a lot more unveiled women. <laughs> yeah. Um, but importantly... For future visitors to Morocco, the current king is spending millions of dollars to restore Jewish sites and places of Jewish interest, like former schools, synagogues, cemeteries, all over the country, even in places that are not major tourist centers like Marrakesh. So he's making an investment in some sort of a Jewish future, as well as a recognition of an important Jewish past. Well, Tom, thanks so much. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Two Jewish as a public service. As Morris nears his 60th birthday, he decides to prepare his will. He goes to see his lawyer. They spend a couple of hours putting together the details. Almost everything's arranged. Just before Morris leaves, he says to the lawyer, I have two final requests to make. I want to be cremated, and second, I want my ashes scattered over Bloomingdale's. Why Bloomingdale's, asked the lawyer. Because then I'm sure my wife will visit me twice a week, says Morris. 
That was the Old Jewish Joke of the Week special feature of Two Jewish, just for you. You should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. This week we read the Torah portion of Mishpatim, a section that includes as many laws as any part of the Torah. To tell the truth, after the last few weeks of spectacularly dramatic portions, featuring some of the highlights in the whole of Jewish tradition, indeed of all religious history, Mishpatim is a major letdown. Last week, for example, amid the smoke and thunder of Mount Sinai, we received the Ten Commandments. The week before that, God parted the sea for us, and we miraculously crossed on dry land. And the weeks before that, plagues struck the Egyptians. Pharaoh and Moses had a duel of wills in the desert. Our people discovered freedom. But this week's portion of Mishpatim is not anything like that. It's just a collection of laws about how to interact with other people. Civil legislation. That's what a Mishpat is, a law of human interaction. Oh, how exciting. How to handle somebody's property fairly. How to assess punitive damages for a man who injures another person or destroys somebody else's property. How to act when somebody puts his or her property in trust with you. What do you do when you find a lost object? Laws of manslaughter and theft, damage and injury. Rules about interest on loans. If the Torah is truly our fundamental moral text, this is an array of detailed legislation about human interaction that is so trivial it seems not to belong in the Torah at all. Shouldn't this be in some legal commentary somewhere? Not here in the heart of the Torah, the centerpiece of Jewish tradition? I believe there is a profound lesson here about our essential nature. Most of us don't care much for rules. We like freedom, not rules. Rules restrict us, prevent us from doing what we want to do when we want to do it, frustrate us, limit us in arbitrary ways. And the most specific and important kinds of rules our society has, well, that's its code of laws. So naturally, we human beings don't love law, or its practitioners for that matter, Lawyer jokes would not be so popular if there wasn't a profound ambivalence about the entire profession. You can make a case that the dismal reputation politicians have is in part attributable to the fact most of them originally practiced law. Their basic function now is to create and administer laws. We may not like laws, but without them, and without enforcement of them, we fallible human beings wouldn't really function well in society at all. In fact, the Mishnah teaches we would likely tear each other apart. And where anarchy reigns, justice does not. So that's where our portion of Mishpatim comes in. We need law, and we need limits. We may not like either one much. Judaism understands that if we are to be truly good or truly free— We must observe the laws and rules of human decency embodied in the code of legislation that makes up this portion of Mishpatim. Because before we can love other human beings as we love ourselves, we must respect those human beings' property and person. If we can successfully do that, we will learn to treat one another with holiness. And then, as Mishpatim ultimately teaches, well... 
then we can find God. When we come back in a moment, our guest, Emmy-winning TV producer and director Jeff Margolis, shares stories of his friendship and work with, oh, Michael Jackson, President Bill Clinton, so many others. Hear Jeff's fantastic stories. He has a new book out. When we come back in just a moment, here on Too Jewish. We continue with our Too Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. In Israel, the grinding war against the brutal Hamas Palestinian terrorists continues. Last week, the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, cleared most of the terrorists from their terror tunnel network under Khan Yunus. The total network of terror tunnels is now more than half the size of the New York subway system under Gaza. War is terrible, and civilian deaths are tragic. It should be noted that the widely publicized figure of 26,000 casualties in Gaza includes 9,000 Palestinian terrorist soldiers killed while shooting at Israelis in a war that they deliberately provoked by massacring 1,200 Israelis in a war crime atrocity conducted by the Palestinians, mostly aimed at civilian women and children, all without provocation. It is extraordinary and remarkable that in a full-on war, Israel has been compelled to fight against terrorists armed to the teeth with rockets, rocket-propelled grenades, Kalashnikov automatic rifles, and a wide variety of other explosives, who use civilians as human shields and fight from hospitals, schools, and aid centers, all conducted in a densely populated urban area of 2.3 million residents, none of whom has been allowed by the Palestinian terrorists to use the huge tunnel network built by Hamas for bomb shelters. Well, only 17,000 civilians out of the 2.3 million have died. Look, no country on earth has ever conducted a war with more care to avoid civilian deaths than Israel has in Gaza. If you recall, the Israelis first notified the Palestinian civilian population to leave the north of Gaza using electronic media and then literally dropping a series of leaflets. Then they warned them to leave with non-lethal sonic bombs. Only after days of warning did the Israelis attack, the brutal, bloodthirsty Palestinian rapists and murderers hiding underneath the civilians in their terror tunnels and warrens of evil. The Israelis followed the same procedures in the center of Gaza and in the south. Civilians leave so that the cowardly Hamas Palestinian terrorists cannot hide behind you as they like to do. Only attack after the well-worn civilians have mostly left. My friends, I have just been there. Over 230 Israeli soldiers have died fighting in Gaza. Undoubtedly, if Israel had conducted itself using the usual protocols of warfare against an antagonist that provoked war by attacking them, fewer Israeli soldiers would have died. But by adhering to a standard of conduct and warfare higher than any maintained by any other army in the world, including the Americans, Israel has accepted tragic casualties and it maintains its army's moral standards of Tohorot HaNeshek, the purity of arms. It is not easy to do. There is a price. But no army in the world holds itself to such a high standard. And the idea that South Africa, South Africa, 
the country where justice is an afterthought at best, accused Israel of genocide in an international court is suitable proof that insanity will reign on earth if we just let it. In other news, in Russia, a Moscow court, and I use the word loosely, extended the pretrial quote-unquote detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkowitz through March 30th, meaning he will have spent at least a year behind bars before his show trial even begins. Gershkowitz is the 32-year-old American son of Jewish immigrants from the Soviet Union. He has been held on espionage charges since March 29th of 2023, he was arrested by Russian agents while reporting in the city of Ekaterinburg. Gershkowitz, the United States government, and the Wall Street Journal all deny any allegations. The Russian government has provided zero evidence of any of it. The U.S. government considers Gershkowitz to be wrongfully held as he is. And that's the news of Jews round the world. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We are delighted to welcome back to Two Jewish Our Guests this morning. Jeff Margolis is the Emmy Award-winning producer of all kinds of specials, including a number of Oscar shows. He's worked with pretty much everybody in show business. Um, we started. We began by talking about how he got his start. Um, tell us, uh, who did you enjoy working with the most? You know, I enjoy everybody. You know, there's always a bump in the road. There are some artists who are difficult, but know that going in, so you deal with it. Most are not. Do I have a favorite? You know, it's like asking a parent who has uh, three or four children, which one is their favorite? <laughs> you know, yeah. every show that I've done, I've loved. The title of my book is Relive in Five, My Extraordinary Life in Television, and it has been extraordinary. I've traveled the world. I've worked with the biggest stars in 
motion pictures, television, and recording artists. I've been blessed. And like I said earlier, you have to have the talent to back up anything you're, you do. And uh, I've got the talent. I'm a good producer and I'm a good director. And, you know, at the end of my book, I have 11 rules of the road. Everybody else has 10, so I thought I'd have 11. And so maybe people would pay more attention to it. Well, I mean, there's there's 10 commandments in the Torah, so you know, you got to add something. Right, right. You're absolutely right. But I, I was just going to say, rule number one is be kind. Rule number five is be kind. And rule number 11 is be kind. And then I, you know, everything else in between... But it's so important to be kind. You get so much more out of people when you're kind and you treat everybody with respect. When I produce a show, I create a family. I like to collaborate. I allow people, if somebody has an idea and they want to share it, I'm happy to listen. And sometimes somebody will have a better idea than what I was planning. And I might use that, but I always give them credit for it. So you have worked with people from uh, Billy Crystal, who wrote the intro to your book, Richard Pryor, Dick Clark. Tell us about what it was like to get the call or the ask to produce the Oscars. It was pretty amazing. As a child, my yeah, I told you I fell in love with television and I watched television my entire childhood through junior high school. When I got into senior high school, I knew I wanted to be a producer-director, and my goal was to one day direct the Oscars. And by the time I was 40 years old, I made my dream become a reality. And uh, I was directing the Academy Awards, the biggest show on television. Now, now that, that came about in part because of a kind of a disaster the year before, right? No, I was part of that disaster. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> that was my first year. It was 1989, I think. And uh, the producer was Alan Carr, who was a great producer he produced a movie called Grease. yeah he sure did i remember yeah and he produced uh, a couple of shows on broadway and he produced uh, a couple of other hit movies and he had never really done television and i was asked to come in and work with him and it was very difficult to explain to him that when you do a television show, it's not like making a movie. And television audiences don't have the patience to sit and watch things that take a lot of time. You know, they sit with a remote control in their hand. They get bored, they can change a station. Anyway, the show was really good, but people did not like some of the things that happened on the show. And uh, that's all that anybody talked about. You know, the Oscars is the show that everybody loves to hate especially the journalists. So it doesn't matter what you do, you know, there's going to be negative. There's going to be always something negative to write about. But the show was not bad. It was the first year that when presenters opened the envelope, they didn't say the winner is. They said the Oscar goes too. And we came up with that because Alan and I felt that all the nominees are really winners. You're a winner when you get nominated. And so why pick one out? Why not just say the Oscar goes to and let everybody think that they were winners? You know what I'm saying? It was just yeah, a nice, nice, just just a nice, a nice way nicer way yeah. to do it. So that was one of the nice things that came out of the show. There's a whole list, which I won't go into, but 
I don't know. Some of my favorite movie star people are, are Clint Eastwood, who's the nicest guy on the planet. Loved working with him. Meryl Streep, who couldn't be sweeter. Julia Roberts. You know, all these people that are sweet. And in television, you know, I did the American Music Awards for 26 years with Dick Clark. That was his show. And you meet everybody in the music business. Over the years, you meet everybody. And I think if you forced me to pick a favorite person, I couldn't. But one of my most challenging shows was with Michael Jackson. And it was a show called Michael Jackson One Night Only. And I call it Michael Jackson One Night Only, the show that never happened. It was an HBO show that was supposed to be live on the air. And uh, we rehearsed for four solid months in New York. We were doing the show at a theater called the Beacon Theater, which for Michael was a much different way of performing. Usually he was performing in arenas and venues with 100,000 people. And the only way you could really see him if you went to one of those concerts was looking at the big screens anyway. So Michael and I wanted to make this show more intimate. And uh, the Beacon Theater, I think, holds maybe maybe 2,500 people or so. And uh, so everybody worked 24-7 for four months. And the day before the show was going live on the air, we were doing our dress rehearsal. And Michael collapsed. He just went down. And for, at first, everybody thought he tripped. And then he didn't move. Oh my God. He had worked himself to exhaustion. He wasn't sleeping enough. He wasn't eating properly. And he collapsed and was rushed away in an ambulance. And... I was told by his doctors that there was no way he was coming back. And uh, I had to let everybody know who had worked so hard for four months on this thing. I had to gather everybody together in the theater and let them know that there wasn't going to be a show. And I, I was so emotionally distraught at the time I had to tell them that I, I actually started to cry. We all felt so badly for Michael. We just wanted him to be okay. But to spend that much time and put that much energy and love into a project and then have it just disappear before it ever happened, it was devastating. I'm so sorry. Boy. Yeah. I mean, his life, you know, was ultimately tragic uh, in spite of all of his incredible talent and the experience of working with him. What a, what a, what a sad way for the show not to go. Well, I met him when he was eight years old. I was doing cue cards at that time on the Andy Williams show. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, of course. Yeah, the singer. Moon River, right? Moon River, right. <laughs> Moon River. Henry Mancini, Andy Williams. Yeah, Andy yeah. So Michael Jackson, Jackson 5 were on Andy Williams. Michael was eight years old. And uh, after they rehearsed their song, he came over to me and he said, Hey, how do you know when to pull those cards? How do you know how many words to put on a card? How do you know how to break down a song? He was so interested in everything. So, uh, you know, I explained it all to him. And a uh, number of months later, I was working on the Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour. But I had moved up from cue cards to associate directing. And I was the associate director on the Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour. So Michael and Jackson 5 were on. And after they rehearsed their song, I was standing on the stage with my script binder. And Michael saw me, came over to me, and, you know, we hugged each other. And how you been? How you been? And he said, where are your cards? And I said, I'm not doing two cards anymore. I'm the associate director on this show. 
And he said, all right, man, good job. What does an associate director do? <laughs> so <laughs> I, took him, I took him into the control room and I showed him everything and where I sat and what I did and where the director sat and all that. And we became very friendly. And I worked with him, you know, so many times throughout the years. And uh, when he had this very important special to do, which was kind of a comeback special after all the terrible allegations against him. You know, that was part of the reason for doing this warm, intimate, sort of the way we were planning to do the special. But anyway, he called me and he asked me if I would work on it with him and do it with him. And that was the kind of relationship we had. No, I was just so sad when it ended the way it ended. Really tragic. You also worked closely with Bill Clinton. Tell us a little bit about that experience. I did all the shows that Bill Clinton did during the eight years they were in the White House. And uh, we did a show for ABC every year called The Gala for the President at Ford's Theater. You know, the famous Ford's Theater where Lincoln was. Yeah, like, uh, aside from that, how was the theater, Mrs. Lincoln? Yeah, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? Exactly. Right. So anyway, we did that show every year, and uh, I became very friendly with Bill Clinton's lead Secret Service guy, and I became friendly with his social secretary and all that. And during the first year, I met with uh, his lead Secret Service guy, and I said, you know, I'm producing and directing this show, and I'd like to talk to the president. You know, I've got a list from his social secretary of all the people he'd like to see on the show, and I'm putting the show together for him. And I don't want to meet him in a receiving line somewhere after the show. I'd like to meet him in person of him. And the Secret Service guy said, he's the president of the United States of America. You're not going to have a meeting with him. So I said, oh, okay. Anyway, the next day I got uh, called. A production assistant who was answering the phone came into my office and said, Brian, the Secret Service guy said, Brian is on the phone. He wants to talk to you. And so I went up to the phone. Brian said, oh, we got a problem. I'm going to come and get you. Uh, be waiting out in front of your office. I said, what's the problem? He said, just, I'll pick you up in 15 minutes. I went out in front of the office, and I hear all these sirens. Then there's motorcycle cops and this, this brigade of, uh, you know... Um, Black limousines and Secret Service guys and, yeah. All of that. Anyway, uh, you know, Brian gets out of one of the cars and says, get in. I said, do, do I need to bring anything? I mean, anyway, to make a long story short, we went to the White House, and we walked to the special elevator, which I knew was the third floor. And nobody goes to the third floor unless you're going to be social with the president and first lady. Anyway, we got off the elevator at the third floor and we walked to this beautiful door, this wooden door, and knocked on the door and the voice on the other side said, yes. And Brian said, the president I have to to see you. And Bill said, ah, oh, come on in. <laughs> and the door opened up. Yeah. The door opened up and... He had just come for a run. He was wearing sweatpants and his, you know, running shoes and all that. He was reading. I think he read every paper published in the, in the world that looked like the stack of papers he had there. But I walked in and Brian said to me, you've got 15 minutes and winked at me. And after 15 minutes, you know, Brian came back and said, okay, I can get you in. And Bill said, uh, no, 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 Brian, I'll call you when we're done. And I ended up 
I ended up talking to him for well over an hour. And, you know, I walked in and Brian introduced us, Mr. President, this is uh, Jeff Margolis. And he said to me, can I call you Jeff? And I said, yes, he said, then you can call me Bill. Nice. So, yeah. And he said, can I get you something to drink? And he went and got me a Perrier out of this little refrigerator in his office. And he said, do you want a glass or you want to drink it out of the bottle? <laughs> I said, I'll drink it out of the bottle. <laughs> and we sat and we talked and he wanted to know so much about me and why I ended up producing and directing television and how it was and what it was like and what the Oscars was like and Miss America and the American Music Awards. And when our time was finally up, he said to me, he said to me, you know, I've got a country to run. <laughs> Sorry, I got to go. I got to, there was a war somewhere. I got to No, I just said, with. okay, fair enough. It was such a pleasure talking to you. I said, but we didn't get to talk about you. He said, well, you know, next time we'll talk about me. It'll be my turn. So I said, deal. And we shook hands and uh, that was how my relationship with them started. And then I did everything. I, like I told you, I did everything that they did. Christmas specials and tours of the White House and all those things that I asked them if they would be interested in doing. And they did everything I asked. Jeff, I feel like we could talk forever and we maybe just scratched the surface of the stories. Didn't even get to ask you what it's like to win an Emmy. Uh, but the book is called My Extraordinary Life in Television. We're live in five, which is a phrase that I'm sure you used and heard plenty. Um, Jeff, where can people go to find out more about you to find out more about the book? Well, I know the book The book is on Amazon and it's at Barnes & Noble and it's at Target as well. You can just go online and you can pre-order the book now. It's coming out February the 13th. And um, you can always Google me. Uh, you can Google me personally or you can Google Jeff Margolis Productions and uh, read a little bit about my background. But buy the book because it's all in there. I start when I was five years old. My dad brought that first TV home, um, you know, all the way through uh, one of the last uh, specials that I did when I started writing the book. You know, at some point you have to say, stay tuned for the next chapter, which is what I did. Which is a very TV thing to say. Jeff, thank you so much. I uh, really enjoyed it. It's a great book. It's a lot of fun. And boy, a lot of great inside stuff. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Anytime you want to talk, just let me know. I'll be there for you. You got a deal. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be six-time Penn award-winning author and man of letters, Jay Nugaboran, author of the fascinating new novel, After Camus. And join us at Congregation Beit Simcha each Friday night for services in Onik Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. This Friday night for Israel Shabbat, I'll be talking about my trip on the rabbinic solidarity mission to Israel. Come Saturday morning to 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. Shabbat morning services, Torah reading in Kiddush, in person, and on our Facebook page. And coming up, Super Bowl Sunday, February 11th, join us for a great Super Bowl super party. You can also just sign up for a square. 20 bucks gets you a chance to win a bunch of money. It's fun, and it's all a donation to Beit Simcha. Our play out today comes from Klezmer Juice, the delightful Freilach in D. My friends, may you have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of justice and peace.
sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.